according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Isaiah once again this morning. We have arrived at chapter 42. Join me in Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 42 begins with a prophecy related to the person of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the well-beloved of God the Father. He is the servant, the chosen one of God the Father. And all the arguments that every Calvinist and Arminian and anyone has ever had related to election and choosing and so forth needs to come right back to this issue and understand that Jesus Christ is the chosen one. And when you get a handle on that, then other things will start to fall into place and how we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And positional truth reality begins to make more sense and starts to come together in in very powerful ways. Well, today we're going to take a look at my servant whom I uphold, Jesus Christ our Savior. Before we do, though, Let's take a moment for silent prayer and make sure that we are filled with God, the Holy Spirit. Let's humble ourselves under the authority of his truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for being so faithful in our lives, for not only saving us, but but providing for us all things pertaining to life and godliness through your precious and magnificent promises. Father, I thank you that we have the mind of Christ. I thank you for the Hebrew canon, for the Greek canon, for the provision of the canon of Scripture whereby we have everything that's necessary. There is nothing apart from your Scripture that is required of us that we might live a life that glorifies your Son, that pleases you with every thought, word, and deed. So, Father, as we turn our attention once again to the Scriptures, we thank you for being faithful. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we begin with the introduction to the servant Messiah. Both the first and second advents of Jesus Christ are presented in this introduction to the servant Messiah. Chapter 42 serves as the introduction. Later chapters will expand it even more. We will see the servant in his suffering in chapter 52 and chapter 53. We will have other descriptions of this faithful servant beginning here with the introduction in chapter 42. But both first and second advents of Jesus Christ are presented. And this is part of what we have to deal with when we rightly divide the word of truth. What do we mean by first and second advents? The fact that Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, we call that his first advent. And had Israel not rejected their king, that would have been his only advent, right? But they rejected their Messiah, and so he ascended to the Father's right hand. He was seated at the Father's right hand until God the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. Jesus has promised to come again. That's second advent. And when he comes again, it will not be uh, the the virgin-born son of Mary in the manger. It's going to be riding on a white horse and conquering. He's going to come back at second advent to defeat Satan, to defeat Antichrist, to win the battle of Armageddon, and to bring in the throne of David under the battlefield victory conditions of, uh, of, his, uh, of his glory. And so these are the things we have to look forward to. Now, you and I are spoiled. We are flat out spoiled as church-age believer priests because we are in between those two advents. 
We are looking back historically to the first advent of what Jesus Christ accomplished in his humility. We're looking forward to his glory and what it is that he will accomplish in the second advent. So we are very well suited in between the two advents to have the best perspective of all, looking back and looking forward. That's exactly what we do at our communion table. We're going to have communion today, and that is our ritual whereby we look back and we look forward, that we memorialize his death. We give thanks for what he accomplished, but we also proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice that? Until he comes. Now, the communion table is limited to the church age, looking back and looking forward. And that's what we see here. So when we're in the Old Testament, when we're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of these Old Testament prophets, they were not where we are. They were not in between the two advents. They were before both of them. And they did not always delineate a difference between the two. In fact, in some prophecies, it's the same. It's both advents wrapped together in one picture. And that's what we have here in Isaiah chapter 42. We really have both advents wrapped together in the same picture looking forward. It's like the perspective I have now looking at all of you and I can't tell um, what shoes you're wearing, right? Because my perspective uh, is, is rather blocked. Unless you're on the aisle, I can kind of see a couple over here. But for most of you, if you're not on the aisle, then then you're behind somebody else or your feet are behind some chairs and there's things that block my view. You don't have a complete picture of things if all you're doing is looking forward with stuff blocking the view. All right? Now, I could walk down the center aisle and start looking row by row and start checking out your feet. All right? I'm not going to do that. But if I did, if I could stand between two rows, then I could see your feet right there. And I'd have the the, the great clarity of, of doing that. That's where we are in the, in the body of Christ, in the church age. We are between the rows. We are between the two advents of Jesus Christ. And we can look back to see what he accomplished on the cross. We can also look forward to see what is remaining yet unfulfilled. Because God said it was going to happen. It has to happen. All things spoken of Christ must be fulfilled. And we understand that. So let's look at these verses. Let's read about this servant. My servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. 
All right, that's verses 1 through 9 in Isaiah 42. And there's a tremendous amount of doctrine in those nine verses. And I would love to take the next 20 weeks to break down those nine verses. We're not going to do it, all right? We're getting chapter 42 today and moving on to chapter 43 next week. But understand, you probably picked up on this when you read some of those verses. sure seemed like Jesus died on the cross and given us salvation. But then there were some other verses that kind of seemed like, wow, uh, conquering and ruling this world and judging the Gentiles. Did you see the blend between first advent and second advent? All right. Hopefully you did. If you've had any kind of rightly dividing training, then some of that should have just jumped right out and said, well, wait a minute. That sounds more like second advent. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds more like first advent. And they're almost, in fact, they are from our viewpoint. They're very scrambled, aren't they? It seems to have a lot of back and forth in between first and second advent. Why is it all lumped together the way that it is in this prophecy? Okay. Because God and his genius did so in a, in a beautiful, beautiful way. Now it's our good pleasure to rightly divide that, to cut that uh, with a sword, to rightly cut that word of truth whereby we can distinguish first advent, second advent, Old Testament, New Testament, law and grace, Israel and the church. All the delineations that we are very blessed to pursue. So we have the servant Messiah. The servant Messiah is very clearly fulfilled by Jesus Christ in his first advent. Don't just take my word for it. Somebody else may point to this and say, well, that's not Jesus. That's Nebuchadnezzar, or that's Cyrus, or that's Muhammad of all terrible things. All right. There are um, non-Christian understandings that are trying to twist the scriptures to find other applications besides Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you something. Only once in the history of mankind have the heavens opened and a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was Jesus Christ at the Jordan River when John the baptizer with the herald was announcing the coming of the king. And so we, we, we read through these verses. We see the anticipation of these things. We go to the gospel of Matthew and it's clear. I don't know how much more clearer it could get. Matthew chapter 3 in verse 17. So you can hold your finger in Isaiah 42. We're going to be back here in, in just a moment. Or use your uh, church bulletin or bubblegum wrapper, whatever you have. Use your finger. We're going to be right back in Isaiah 42 in just a moment. But let's look at Matthew chapter 3. So you think about what God does. How genius is God? He's, he's been promising the coming kinsman redeemer since he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And the promise, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And he has sent how many Hebrew prophets? He has written how many Hebrew books of the Bible? And every indication of who this Christ is going to be, that he's going to be the son of David, he's going to be a son of Abraham, he's going to be of the tribe of Judah, he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. All these things were announced thousands of years ahead of time, or at least hundreds of years ahead of time, by the time of Isaiah. And if that wasn't clear enough, a virgin will have a son. How much more obvious can it get? How many, how many pregnant virgins have had sons uh, at this point of time in the history of the world? And as if, and all of the prophets that he sent, and he sends the greatest prophet who ever walked this earth as John the baptizer to say, here he is. And that's not enough. The heavens themselves are going to be opened and the voice of the Father himself announces. Now to me, this is a fun chapter and I love this, um, 
as uh, Jesus arrived from the Galilee and the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. See, the whole baptism ministry of John leading up to this day was a baptism of repentance. John was sent to, to rebuke the Israel and their sins and to, to spur them to repentance, to, to evaluate their holiness or lack thereof and to prepare themselves in repentance for the coming of their king. And so his whole ministry has been one on repentance, preaching repentance again and again and again. And then here comes the only being that does not need repentance, the sinless savior of humanity who needs no repentance. And so you can understand why John might be hesitant or might be confused. And he says, I need to be baptized by you. Why are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. Okay? And so here's the ritual. This is the anointing. This is what then is going to begin Jesus' public ministry as a prophet, priest, and king entitled to the throne of David. Right? doesn't take the throne, but this is his anointing here. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. So we have the Father's testimony, we have the Holy Spirit's testimony. Of course, God the Son is standing right here in the flesh. And behold, a voice out of heaven says, uh, Isaiah 42.1 is fulfilled, right? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There can be no other application of this faithful servant than the person of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I believe right then was a great big satanic gasp because for nearly 30 years now, the devil has been absolutely clueless. He, uh, he motivated Herod to, to murder all those baby boys in Bethlehem. And Herod put all those baby boys to death. And then what? <laughs> right? And then what? When you're operating in satanic methodology and you think you've accomplished something, what are you left with? You're left with 30 years of doubt and wondering, and did it work? And did I get it right? And is he dead? Am I safe? You know, because the Lord had already been rescued, taken off to Egypt, hidden away. Okay? Think how genius God is in this. And so Satan thinks, hey, it worked. I killed that baby. No, you didn't. All right? And it wasn't until this very time, 30 years later, then that the father's voice comes and Satan's immediately on notice. Wow, that didn't work. <laughs> I wasn't able to kill that baby, okay? And uh, so that Jesus is immediately led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil, and there it goes. It's on after that. Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21, another cooperating testimony to the fulfillment of Scripture. Matthew 12, verses 18 through 21. And uh, a little bit of reflection here at this point. Um, Folks are asking about John the Baptist, and they're not quite sure what to think about him. And they're challenging him on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, look, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, all right? And they're not sure what to make of that. And all the hostility is getting worse and worse and worse, and it reaches a hinge point. And this is the chapter where that hinge takes place. And he no longer preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He never gives that message ever again after this hinge moment of of his career. Instead, he starts to prepare his disciples for the cross. He starts to prepare for his own crucifixion, his own death, his own resurrection. And so in, in this aftermath, Matthew 12, 14, we read that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. They're dedicated now to killing him. And so Jesus, aware of this, 
withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. But he warned them not to tell who he was. It's a big shift in Jesus' ministry. So he physically heals them, but he forbids them to go and testify to his, to his calling. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Guess what he's quoting? Isaiah 42, the passage that we're studying today. In fact, 18, 19, 20, 21 is one, two, three, and most of four there in, in the Hebrew text, or actually the Septuagint text of, uh, of Isaiah 42. So we have the servant Messiah. What humanity has been looking forward to ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And there he is, coming to his people and rejected by his people. We have, following this, we have the I will promises to the Father, from the Father to the Son. We read them already, verses 5 through 9, but these are the I will promises from the Father to the Son. The God who created the heavens and stretched them out, the God who did all this, I am the Lord, I will. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand. I will watch over you. Why do you think Jesus Christ was confident in his first advent? You know, some of the times he was praying and he was sweating great drops of blood and he was, his humanity was wondering, but he had the promise from his father. I will be with you. I have called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand. I will watch over you. What do you think Jesus clung to in the garden of Gethsemane? When all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the sins, when the full awareness of what the cross was going to be all about hit him and he tried to get Peter and John and those guys to pray with him, Okay, this is the promise. God the Father is with him until, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, right? That very moment darkness hits, the sin is applied, and then the Father turns his back. Okay, does that mean this verse is a lie? (laughs) All right, oh, this is fun. So, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Who are the people? the Jewish people, Israel, the nation that he's sent to, they're the ones that receive the covenant. I will appoint you a covenant to the people and, notice, as a light to the other nations, to the Gentiles. Jesus has a role starting with the Jewish people, but also illuminating every Gentile nation on the face of the earth. Last hour, we talked about that new covenant. We talked about why he poured out that cup on the night before. Why was the cup poured out? It was the blood of the covenant. When does the covenant blood get applied to Israel? See, not till second advent, okay? If you missed last hour, you missed a a pretty deep class. But here it is. And Christ is the only one that can fulfill this. Christ is the only one that can be the mediator of the new covenant between God and Israel, just as he's the only one that can be the mediator between God and man in our redemption. Two separate aspects. And so here are the I will promises from the Father to the Son. So Jesus is going to be a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Now, is that already fulfilled? Was that first advent? In part. And this guy, actually, he quoted from some of this when he was encouraging John the Baptist. This is also true when we see the light and get saved. Okay, But worldwide, globally, this won't be true until he's seated on the throne of David. And then the teaching ministry of the Jewish people to the nations around the world will become clear. Those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Just wait until, I mean, presently this fallen world is the prison, right? The cosmos. Wait till Satan is confined and Jesus Christ brings this world into his 
freedom. I am Yahweh, verse 8. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. So why does he give it to Christ? If the Father, if God does not give his glory to other, why does he give his glory to Christ? Okay? Read that high priestly prayer in John 17. It's all about glory. And the Son has come to glorify the Father, but he calls upon the Father to glorify him. It's because he's not giving his glory to another. God is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is pleased to give glory to the Son. It's it's actually a powerful testimony to the deity of Christ. Because there is no other God, he will not share his glory with a false God. All the idols that he rebukes in these chapters here in, in Isaiah. God will not share his glory, especially with those liars like Satan who says, I will be like the Most High God. <laughs> God says, no, you won't. And no, you're not. You never will be. But Jesus Christ, he does. He glorifies his son, Jesus Christ. And that's uh, ultimately his good pleasure. So when he says, I will not give my glory to another, it, obviously it excludes himself. It excludes his son. And by the way, it excludes you and me because we are in Christ. God the Father will glorify us. He already has. We are called. We are justified. We are glorified positionally in Christ. We've been glorified since the day we got saved. What a, what, what a blessing is that? And so we have these promises here. Now, there's still some expectations here of waiting. And some of these things I hope um, we don't miss. It takes more time probably than we have available today. But You'll notice there's waiting in verse 4. It says the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. So even though we have first advent and second advent together in this combined prophecy, there are little hints. There are little hints within the text that maybe it's not all going to happen in one uh, swell foop or one fell swoop. Okay, Maybe it's going to happen in part and then have a delay. And we get little glimpses, little clues. Okay, and I think part of that comes in verse four when we notice uh, we're going to have to wait expectantly for some of that uh, uh, justice to be established in the earth. It hadn't hadn't exactly hit yet, and uh, his law is not yet governing the nations of this planet. We still got to wait for that. Okay, I think likewise in verse nine, former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they uh, spring forth. You mean there's a coming age in which there are going to be some things completed and then there's some things that haven't happened yet? All right? Now, God is not violating mystery doctrine. He's not spoiling the the church age in any respect. There's nothing in here that that talks about Greek scriptures or local churches or pastors or spiritual gifts or any of that. Church is still a mystery. But with the advantage of our hindsight, we can look back and we can kind of pick up on these glimmers on these little clues, on these little inferences from the text itself. I think not only is there an age such as we observe today, whereby we have past completed prophecy and the future promised prophecy, I believe the millennium itself is going to contain abundant prophecy, prophecy that relates to the new heavens and the new earth. It has to, because Israel is ushered into the prophetic office. You can't be a prophet and not prophesy. What are they going to be prophesying about? What are they going to be talking about? What's going to follow the millennium? That's, that's the, the content of their message. And why are they having animal sacrifices all over again? I thought animal sacrifices were done when Jesus Christ hung on the cross. Okay, well, they were. Those previous animal sacrifices that were shadow Christology pointing ahead to Christ. What about the millennial animal sacrifices? If it's not shadow Christology, 
what points forward to the new heavens and the new earth? Okay? I'll give you a clue. It's shadow paterology. It's shadows of the Father. And it's going to be taught by the, the millennial prophets. It's what we're going to look forward to in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus Christ rules as the everlasting Father. Different things there. All right, well, goodness. There's uh, 20 weeks of teaching all in 15 minutes. I hate it. All right, if you have questions, bring them up on Wednesday night. We've got to move on. We're going to sing a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. We've got verses 10 through 13. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. See, right now, there aren't too many people singing the glories of the Lord. (laughs) You might have noticed that. The music industry of this world is not geared towards glorifying Jesus Christ. And, uh, well, that's going to change. Sing His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and those who dwell in them. So that would be headed west out of Israel. You hit the sea and travel to glorify the Lord. Or maybe you're going to go east. You're going to go to the wilderness. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits. And the, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. And so whether you're going west to the sea or east to the wilderness, the celebrity of the universe is in Jerusalem. And new songs need to be sung to His glory. I don't know what those new songs are yet. They haven't been written yet. <laughs> All right? They're not recorded in this text. We don't have the lyrics written out for us. We just have the principle. This is what the song needs to be about. Let them give glory to Yahweh, to the Lord, and declare His praise in the coastlands. Yahweh, the Lord, will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. We don't have to do it. How many Christians are busy just spinning their wheels, working harder than anything, trying to bring in the kingdom? And this verse says they're not the ones doing it. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That makes it happen. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. Okay, put these things in order. What's that shout about? Do you know what the shout's about? That's about getting us out of the way. <laughs> that's about clearing the decks. That's, that's uh, getting the, the Lord himself descends with a shout with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ rise first. We're out of here. That blessed hope of the body of Christ, we're not going to be here to see the wrath. Jesus Christ is going to take us home. He's been preparing those mansions ever since He ascended. He's going to take us home. We're going to be in glory before wrath ever hits this earth. We are delivered from the wrath to come. All right. So singing a new song, from west to east, Israel's neighbors will sing the glory of Jesus Christ's victory to rescue Israel. Think about it. You know, throughout all the Old Testament, Israel, what did they do when they came through the Red Sea? They passed through the Red Sea, they got to the other side, the waters came crashing down. What's the first thing they did? They sang a song. That's it. They sang a song. And the text of that is composed for us there in Exodus. We can read about it. All right. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was involved in that, doing the tambourine thing. Okay. We've never done tambourines here. Philippines do tambourines and they do it great. That's, I just wouldn't try to bring it here. You guys would be terrible at it. <laughs> but in the Philippines, it works. And the singing and the dancing and the culture and the, it's just uh, glorifying to Christ. How did I get on this? Oh, so, tambourine, songs, Miriam, okay? 
Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. All right? And each time they're singing a song. David gets rescued from Saul. What does he do? He sings a song. He writes it. In fact, many of them ended up in the book of Psalms. Okay? Again and again and again, there's rescue and there's a song. Jesus even promised that he was going to sing a song when he got to heaven as he was trusting in the Father while hanging on the cross. Okay? Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. And so we have a global song now that's going to be sung. It's going to be Israel's neighbors that are going to be composing this song. They're going to be celebrating. That's new. All right, that's new. Because when Israel came out of Egypt, the neighbors weren't singing songs. Okay, They're getting scared. Jericho was getting scared saying, yeah, we saw what you did to, the, to Egypt. The Philistines were getting scared saying, yeah, we saw what you did to Egypt. The Moabites, the Ammonites, all the, the Edomites... They weren't singing songs to celebrate Yahweh. They were uh, scared of those Jewish people coming out of Egypt because they saw what God had done to the gods of Egypt. They weren't singing songs, but they will at the second advent. They will in the millennial kingdom, see, because this is what's prophesied and this is what's to be expected for a redeemed people. They're all believers that survive the tribulation, that pass through the sheep and goat judgment, that he puts them into their, into their millennial uh, land grants, and they're all believers to start the millennium of Jesus Christ. And they're going to be singing songs. Think about that. What a day is that going to be? Six times in Psalms we have new songs that are mentioned. Psalm 33, Psalm 40, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Psalm 144, Psalm 149 be kind of fun to take a message for each one of those, but we can't, <laughs> okay? But you'll notice when a new song is sung, it's because Yahweh has done something amazing. And we go, wow, isn't he faithful? Why do we ever doubt? Why do we ever wonder? He did it again. Oh, there he goes again. God did it again. Isn't that just like God? That's what he does. He's faithful. He rescues. He saves. And again and again and again, we have it, Okay. Psalm 33, and I can't take time on this. Every Sunday is rushed anyway, but Communion Sunday is especially rushed. Psalm 33. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to Him with harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done with faithfulness. His lo- he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So there you go. There's one example. There's so many more. Psalm 40, Psalm 96. Just write those verses down and read through them this week sometime. Familiarize yourself with them. Psalm 40 in verse 3, Psalm 96 in verse 1. All of these are with reference to new songs. Psalm 98 in verse 1. Psalm 144 in verse 9 and Psalm 149 in verse 1. I'll grab that last one. Psalm 149 in verse 1. What's wrong with singing the old ones? Why do we got to learn new ones all the time? Well, there's a place for the oldies. I like the oldies. You know, the old ones are great because you don't have to even read the words anymore. You just know them. But the new ones are good too. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and His praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in their king. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Right? But children of the heavenly king. Children of the heavenly king. 
We'll sing his praise above. We'll sing his praise above. Okay. Six new songs. Revelation has a couple of new songs. Revelation 5.9, Revelation 14.3, new songs. By the way, besides the six uses in Psalms, the one use in Isaiah 42, and the two uses in Revelation, this is it. This is the whole scripture record on new songs. Right here in a five-minute blast. Two new songs in Revelation. In chapter 5, it's a new song because never before has the Lamb standing as if slain ever appeared before the Father's court. Can you imagine what a day this was? Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. I, I, I just boggles the mind. And we get a little vision of it here. I hope it's on video. I want to see it when I get there. The, um, when Jesus Christ ascended that very first time on Sunday, April 5th, when he ascended to his Father's throne, we have a vision of it here, the Lamb standing as if slain. What a vision. Revelation chapter 5, goodness. John is, is weeping. He's absolutely weeping because he sees the scroll in, verse, in chapter 4. He knows nobody's worthy of opening it. They searched through heaven and no one was worthy. But here's one who's worthy. And so um, one of the elders tells John in Revelation 5, 5, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Good news. The lion has overcome. And that's supposed to get John from, stop, from, from weeping, right? So he turns, but he doesn't see a lion. He turns and he sees the lamb. That's so important. So I saw between the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Can you imagine? And John saw this in his vision on the Isle of Patmos. And then, and then the whole thing explodes. All of heaven explodes into song. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fall down before the lamb, each one holding a harp of golden bowls full of incense, and they sang a new song. See, they'd already been singing from chapter 4. They've been singing the glories of God from all eternity. The angels have always been singing holy, 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 and singing the glories of God the Father. But when the Lamb arrives in His victory of the cross, it's time for a brand new song. And we see them uh, break it out here. It's a fun thing. Finally, in chapter 14, this is a bit of a puzzle. Not only is it a new song, but it's a new song with a limited um, audience, a limited uh, performance. Revelation 14.3, the 144,000 gets to sing this song. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Imagine that. Okay? There's a lot of songs I can't learn just because I'm musically damaged. But, but think about a song you cannot learn because the very nature of that song is only tuned to the souls of those 144,000 that God has sealed with His protective seal. That's amazing. Gives me more questions than answers when it comes right down to it. All right, 14 through 25. The long silence is over. 
the painful birthing of Israel's glory. All right? You know, you reach a point and you're just tired of being pregnant. <laughs> right? You reach a point, uh-oh, this just kind of got personal. But you know, at a certain point, <clears throat> all that's left is groaning and grasping and panting and pain and it's time for this baby to finally get here and this is where the lord has been now as we say it's not entirely clear that there's two advents and in thousands of years in between but there's a glimmer there's a little clue a little hint that we can look back with hindsight and we can read into it and understand it because of our new testament perspective but I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Imagine how many times God has just wanted to let it rip, right? Just let the Gentiles have it for the way they've been treating the Jews. What do you think he wanted to do when Hitler and the Holocaust was going on? That he stayed silent, even while he's birthing the nation of the modern state of Israel. But now, like a woman in labor, I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills. This is a little bit more devastating than when a pregnant woman is giving birth. <laughs> okay? You know, they can groan and they can gra- they make a lot of noise. And But mountains and hills don't crumble in a typical human childbirth. Okay? But when God is groaning when God is in the anguish of what he has to do to humble his people. There are very real effects of, on the earth of God's wrath. So mountains and hills will, and wither all their vegetation. I will make rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. You know what happens? Every seal is broken. Every trumpet is sounded as the bowls are cast down. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. Israel is the blind and they're going to get rescued despite themselves. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do. I will not leave them undone. God has not, God will never fail to accomplish what he's promised. We have this term, we call it unfulfilled prophecy, and I don't like it. We have fulfilled prophecy and then unfulfilled prophecy. But you know what? I don't want to use that term anymore. I want to call it fulfilled prophecy and yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy because it will be fulfilled. Unfulfilled sounds negative. It sounds like he just couldn't get it. You know, God did pretty good. He got about a third of them done. That's better odds than Nostradamus, okay? No, God's 100%. Everything he promises, he's going to do. And so the things we've seen that he has done, how did he do them? Literally, exactly, precisely. How is he going to do these other ones? Literally, directly, precisely. The lion will lie down with the lamb. That's going to happen. It's not just poetry. Jesus Christ will conquer this world and sit on David's throne and govern planet earth from Jerusalem. That's going to happen. All right. But it's going to take this kind of wrath to humble Israel. I will not leave them undone. In order for Israel to receive their kingdom, Israel has to be humbled. So verse 17, they will be turned back and will be utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, you are our gods. The Jewish people who made a bargain with Antichrist, who've been serving idols for the last 2,000 years plus the tribulation, 
They've got to turn from their idols and trust in the Lord God. They actually have to call upon the Lord whom they crucified to save them. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. You ever tell a deaf person to listen? You ever tell a blind person to look at this? That's what God's doing here. Israel is deaf and blind, but he commands them to look and listen. And as he pierces their darkness, they're going to see. Who is blind but my servant? Or so deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as he that is at peace with me? Or so blind as the servant of the Lord? Now we've just shifted from the, from the servant Messiah to the servant nation. And God is bringing Israel now into their servant nation position. You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. This is what happens all too often. Seeing what they don't see, hearing what they don't hear. Coming to Bible class and hearing something, but it's not sinking in. They're not uniting it by faith. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious. Notice, it's not because they deserved it. It's His righteousness that's at stake here. But this is a people plundered and despoiled. All of them are trapped in caves or hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and spoil with none to say, give them back. The hopelessness of Israel, right before Armageddon, the hopelessness of Israel in the second half of the Great Tribulation, it just looks like there is no escape. There is no hope. There is no answer. But what about the one who promised to deliver them? (laughs) What about him? Okay, as hopeless as it can get. See, with Gideon, God cut those armies down to a small number. This is even worse than that. They have no allies. They are doomed, but for the Lord God of hosts who comes to rescue them. All right, let's wrap up this chapter here. Who among you will give ear to this? All right, you see how hopeless it is? Are you listening? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? You mean we have to learn the doctrine of the discouraging messages? Yeah. Learn what this is saying and give heed. Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Does it seem hopeless? Well, why does it seem hopeless? Because who's the one that did that? Okay. It wasn't the Gentile nations that did that. It was Yahweh that did that. Yahweh gave them over to the Gentile nations. Yahweh is the one that scattered them abroad to the four corners of the earth. And Yahweh is the one that's going to bring them back. So don't be discouraged because it looks hopeless. Cling to the one that put you in those hopeless circumstances. Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and whose ways they were not willing to walk, whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around. And yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Man, what a bummer. You talk about a sad ending. What a terrible way to end the chapter. It's a good thing chapter 43 comes, uh, 43 comes next. All right? There's a great big but that starts chapter 43. Because if we had to end the book with, with chapter 42, that's, that's, a, that's a sad state. But remember, God's the one that's doing all this. We are provoking God's wrath. And that's a great thing. Because God's wrath is short. His loving kindness is long. His forgiveness is, is, is great. And we have the... Uh, the recognition that when his anger is short, he does not give us according to all that we deserve. 
but he's merciful and he's patient and he's long-suffering. And when the discipline does its purpose, it's over and done with. That's the whole point of this, of this exercise. All right, here's some principles, four of them out of this section here. When the servant Messiah rescues the servant nation, Israel will know they neither earned it nor deserved it. Verses 14 through 17, which we've already read. When the servant Messiah rescues the servant nation, Israel will know they neither earned it nor deserved it. In fact, the millennium itself is the time of their sorrow, the time of their guilt, the time of their reflection. When they will spend the the thousand years, just a day, they will spend a thousand years lamenting what they put their Messiah through in order to redeem them. We'll show you that here in, uh, in this context as well as other contexts coming up. They will know they neither earned it or deserved it. It's the same thing with our salvation. <laughs> when you trusted in Christ to receive eternal life, you did not earn it, you did not deserve it. Or how about our confession of sin? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because we earned it or deserved it? No. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because Jesus Christ paid that price. We don't deserve forgiveness, but he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Likewise, when Israel is delivered, when the millennial kingdom is inaugurated, when he takes his seat on the throne of David, all of Israel will know that it was despite them, not because of them. It was for his own righteousness sake, for his own namesake, that this glory is going to be manifest. You see, Old Testament Israel was blind and deaf despite every blessing the Lord supplied them. Old Testament Israel was blind and deaf. And they were the covenant nation. (laughs) They were the nation that had the prophets. They were the nation that had the scriptures. You know, was it the, the, were the Greeks going to give all this wisdom to humanity? What do the Greeks give humanity? Right? Besides philosophy and democracy and logic. Thanks a lot, Greeks. Um, What did the Hebrew scriptures give humanity? The Hebrews birthed the Christ, the kinsman redeemer, the salvation of all humanity. Okay? Euclid and his geometry. Thanks a lot. And you think about all the things the Greeks ever gave us, but think about the covenant nation of Israel, the ones with truth, the ones called to testify to the kinsman redeemer, the ones to birth the kinsman redeemer. And yet, they were blind, they were deaf, they would not listen, they were a stubborn and stiff-necked people. He didn't pick the Jews because they were the greatest people around. He picked these stubborn, stiff-necked people to glorify his own grace. This is Old Testament Israel now. Tribulational Israel will need to pay heed to this message and acknowledge their guilt. Tribulational Israel will need to pay heed to this message and acknowledge their guilt. They still haven't to this day. 2,000 years later, they don't acknowledge their guilt for crucifying the Christ. Uh, Jewish theology to this day says that Christ was a blasphemer and a heretic and he was rightly executed by the Sanhedrin of the first century. But in the tribulation, they will need to pay heed now this question 
as it's asked here. Who among you will give ear to this? <laughs> Who will give heed and listen hereafter? I tell you, if they don't give heed in the tribulation, they won't be listening in the hereafter. They will not enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The wilderness judgment will purge the rebels from among Israel. See, Zechariah 12.10 says that uh, they will look upon him whom they pierced. Here's a prophecy for you. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Well, Zechariah was a minor prophet. Who pays attention to him? You better. Jesus did. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of hated Drimen in the plain of Megiddo. Why do you think Megiddo is important? Why do you think the plain of Megiddo is important? Does Armageddon mean anything? All right. What does it take to break Israel's arrogance and bring them to this point of repentance? It takes the tribulation. See, in order to pass through the waters and the fires and become millennial Israel, they first must pay heed to this message. They will never reach Isaiah 43 if they're not humbled by Isaiah 42. We'll talk about this next week. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. We've got hymns that address that, right? Some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Okay? We should do that hymn next week. (laughs) In any event, if they're going to pass through the waters and the fire, if they're going to enter into the millennial kingdom, they've got to be humbled by this discipline of the tribulation. If they don't learn the lessons of Isaiah 42, they will never reap the promises of Isaiah 43. That's what it takes. Absolutely what it takes. The pending messianic kingdom creates a fervent call to repentance for Israel. It's a fervent call to repentance. The message of repentance, okay? It's the message of the pending kingdom. It's a call to the covenant nation to operate under their covenant principles. That's why you have John the Baptist preaching repentance in Matthew 3. You have Jesus preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 4. Even Matthew 23, Luke 24, Acts 17, the message of repentance. What do you think the 144,000 are going to be doing during the tribulation? They're going to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of repentance. The pending messianic kingdom creates a fervent call to repentance. You know, it's interesting. Here's John the Baptist, and he's baptizing, and they're all coming out. And then a crowd of Pharisees comes out from the religious schools. And they're just checking them out, trying to figure out what's going on. And John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? (laughs) Message isn't for you. The repentance message is for believers to orient to the coming kingdom. Well... There's a lot more. I've got to close with this because we've got communion. Let me uh, grab Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And we'll close with this and we'll prepare for communion. Matthew 23 is during the, uh, the Passion Week. And he's already had his triumphal entry. 
He's already ridden in on a colt. The children were singing Hosanna. The children had divine viewpoint capacity to quote Psalm 118 and praise the Lord, but the Pharisees sure couldn't do it. And in uh, Matthew 23, 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. That's why they were blind and deaf. How often I wanted to gather your, you, your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. See, in the plan of God, he's not coercing volition. Therefore, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. There will be a second advent, but it's going to be thousands of years later. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. What's the one condition for Israel to receive the Christ? There's only one condition for Jesus Christ to return at second advent. And it's right here in this verse. You will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As a nation, the Jewish people must repent and confess the Christ whom they crucified, looking upon him whom they pierced, to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's going to take tribulation to humble them. It's going to take something far worse than Hitler's Holocaust ever was to prepare the Jewish people for the coming of the Lord. All right? The pending Messianic kingdom creates a fervent call to repentance for Israel. Shall we pray? Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the promises. And Father, we're kind of left hanging with judgment here at the end of chapter 42, but we're looking forward to chapter 43 and the promise. What's going to bring Israel through this time as they're humbled, as they look to the Lord, as they call out to him? Father, Israel has to be faithful unto you even as Jesus was faithful unto you. Father, Jesus set the pattern. He was the, he was the servant Messiah and he was faithful even to the death on the cross. And so, Father, it is your, your servant nation. They too must be found faithful. They too must imitate the servant Messiah. And it's going to take the wrath of God of the great tribulation to bring that about. Father, your son learned obedience through the things that he suffered. So too, your nation will learn obedience through the things that they suffer. And Father, uh, I just thank you for these promises. I thank you for the, the uh, way that you reveal your plan. You speak new things before they come to pass. So when they do come to pass, Father, creatures of time can give you the praise and give you the glory because you do what only you can do. I just thank you for being so faithful. Now, Father, as we approach the communion table, I ask that this doctrine might be at the forefront of our thinking, that we would be humble before you, that we might meditate and dwell on who you are and how you do what only you can do, and you do it in perfection. Perfect timing, perfect methods, perfect results, perfect everything. Father, thank you for the blessing of this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.